morning. So, you know, have you, have you ever seen that show, Undercover Boss? Undercover Boss is where the head of some big corporation or some big company goes and works among the employees so that he or she can find out what's really happening, what's going on, and finding ways to improve the company and that sort of thing. I'm, one of these days, I want to create a TV show called Undercover Pastor. <laughs> and uh, I, I've just had this, I've had this funny idea that I'm going to become an Uber driver. And uh, so that I can become an Uber driver and go undercover as a minister and kind of find out what people really think about religion. Because the minute I say I'm a minister, it immediately changes the conversation. And most people don't really talk to me about really what goes on in their hearts because they think I'm going to judge them or, you know, or something like that. But, you know, you may not know this, but, but most Sundays I am like the undercover pastor. Because what I do is I sometimes I stand at the back of the service. You think I'm just being lazy, you know, but I'm actually at the back of the service because new people always sit at the back and they don't know me. And so I go undercover and they go, oh, that's, I should have talked to that guy because he's up front now talking and he talked to me. But it's really great because I ask them, why are you here? Why, why are you coming? And I find out undercover, you know, what they're here for. And oftentimes, this is what happens. And it's happened this morning. I'm not going to embarrass the couple that I met earlier undercover. You know who you are. But they said, well, you know, um, I'm Catholic and I'm Baptist. You know how many times I've heard that as undercover? I hear it a lot. How many people here maybe were raised Catholic? Raise your hand. A lot. Look at that. So if you're Catholic, you're, you can see. How many of you were raised Baptist? Raise your hand. Okay. This is a church of Catholics and Baptists. Now, <laughs> this is Middletown Catholic Baptist Church, okay? So, so I'd ask you the question, where can you find a church I mean, maybe a lot of churches, we're not that unique in this way. But where can you find a church where people have come from such radically different backgrounds to be a part of a church? And who have such different sets of beliefs and bring it together one place? Well, that's one of the things that makes our church really, really, really unique and really beautiful. I want to I share with you, uh, I want to reinforce something with you about our church. We have a set of core values that makes that happen, okay? The fact that we have different people here, we have a set of core values that's made space for that to happen, okay? Core value, radical love of Jesus for all people. We also have a core value around the idea of freedom, uh, of interpretation of Scripture. That we want you to read the Bible on your own, and we realize that people are going to disagree about what they believe, but that's okay. We think that's a good thing, okay? Now, we don't have a doctrine that you have to say, I believe this in order to be here. We, we have freedom. So love, freedom. The third is conversation, real conversations of value. That means we think it's a cool thing that Baptists, Catholics get to be in the same church together, and we can talk about our faith, and we can ask questions and be real about ourselves. And what happens is that it, it creates this fourth core value, which is the idea of love, and, I mean community. We, we create community. We take all these 
separate, fragmented people, bring them together and form community. That's why communion is at the center of our table, the center of our worship, people coming together from different backgrounds. And then all that creates this heart for service. You know, creates a heart for service. That's what makes that sort of Catholic Baptist thing possible, okay? Because what it does is it creates a sacred space that's big enough for people to be a part of who will say, you know, I don't agree with you. I agree with you. I don't agree with you. I believe this is the most important thing. I believe the Bible says this. No, I believe the Bible says this. And you know what? It's really messy. But it's a beautiful thing that creates sort of a sacred, holy place for people to come to meet Jesus free of doctrine and free of religion and free of being at the mercy of another person's beliefs or opinions about their faith. You see, it would be a lot easier if I just asked everybody in the church who was liberal to leave and go to another church. And then we just have a nice church of conservative people who all believe the same things, all vote the same way. That'd be great, wouldn't it? No. Not for liberal people. Or I could just say, we're going to kick all the conservative people out and we'll just be a liberal church. That wouldn't be good either. You know? If you're looking for a liberal church, there's one in the community. I'm sure you can find one. We're looking for an all conservative But we're not that church. We're this church that sort of believes it should all be held together. And, and Jesus essentially said the same thing, okay? Jesus was asked, he was, he was asked this question, what's the most important thing? What is the thing that God expects from us? The one thing that's above everything that pulls everybody together. We'll never get everybody together to believe on everything. What's the one thing? And you know what Jesus said? He quoted two parts of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6.4 called the Shema, which was the first verse that a Jewish child would memorize preparing for their bar mitzvah. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he pulled the second part of Scripture together to say, and love your neighbor as yourself. He said that's the essence of life. Love of God, love of neighbor, love of neighbor, love of God. That's the thing that pulls our church together. That creates that space, that messy space where we're able to agree and serve and be in community together and meet God in one another. If you only hang out with people who are like you, if you only live in your neighborhood, if you never have your neighborhood expanded to be bigger than the one you live in, you'll never know God. Because God created the whole universe and filled it with diversity. And God looks like the whole world, not just like you. So you'll only know God as you get to know someone different from you. You see, sometimes we think we're the ones that bring God to the other, but it's the other who brings God to us. So that's why we have a church with Catholics and Baptists. We're sort of a Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Christian church, <laughs> Episcopalian church, right? 
So if you read the Gospel of Luke then, I point out to you, the Gospel asks two really important questions. You can say Luke answers and addresses two questions of us, you, me, all of us. And the first one is, who is Jesus? Who is he? Who is he? Patrick answered that question today. He is my Savior. Second question it asks is, who is my neighbor? Reinforced by the great commandment. Here's what's interesting. You can't know who Jesus is if you don't know your neighbor. You don't know who your neighbor is if you don't know who Jesus is. Think about that. Those two things illustrate one another. Now, here's what happens. <laughs> So, Jesus is getting tested here. Because in that world that Jesus lived in, it was, rad it was radically divided among religious sects and groups. Religion was a dividing force. There are Jewish people, Gentile people, unclean people, Samaritan people, rich people, poor people, management, labor, you know. Servants, slaves, masters. And it was divinely sanctioned. They had taken those divisions in culture and had used religion to sanction it and keep everybody in their place. Religion was not a reconciling force. It was one that kept the divisions in place. So when Jesus shows up, he's got this whole different vision, you know. He says, no, 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 real religion, real religion unites, heals, reconciles, doesn't divide or degrade. Real religion. You know you've got bad religion if it divides, if it segregates. How in the world people in the South, Bible believers, could think that the church would sanction civil rights or Jim Crow laws? How would they think that? That's bad religion. But when Jesus shows up, he has this vision of the kingdom and this vision of the neighbor that's always expanding, that religion, good religion, brings people together. So he's crossing all these boundaries. He's hanging out with Samaritans. and God, you, hate, you know the Samaritans, you hate them. And he's hanging out with Gentiles, sick people, unclean people. He's breaking all the religious laws. So what happens? They start sending delegations of people to question him. They want to they trap him. So one day, there's this expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus and asked him this question. Hey, Jesus, we want to know. We see the way you're hanging out with people. We want to know from you, what does a person have to do to be saved? You see, it was a question of orthodoxy. What do you believe? Because we're going to find out if you're the real deal or not. Do you have to believe to be saved? I love Jesus because Jesus is smart. You learn from him that when you're getting drilled by a, relig a religious person who's wanting to test your orthodoxy, the best thing to do is to ask him a question back. Now, what's really interesting, he asks him the question, and then he answers the question the way that Jesus has already been answering it. He answers it with Jesus' answer. He's been obviously listening to Jesus. 
The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and your mind, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And then he goes on and he says, right, Jesus told him, do this and you'll live. This is the essence of life, love of God, love your neighbor. You want to have a good, meaningful life, love people, love God. So the man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now let me tell you why he's asking this. He's asking it for the same reason you ask it. Okay, I get it. I get it. We're supposed to love people, but don't we get to draw the line somewhere? I mean, do we really have to make our neighborhood big enough for everybody? I mean, I, I understand what you're saying, Jesus, but you've got to live in the real world, you know? The real world, it's not quite like that. I mean, that pie in the sky, reconcile, races coming together. Uh, you know, okay, I get it, but don't we have some rules here that, you know, the in and out crowd, I get it. Who is my neighbor? Then Jesus tells the story. It blows his brains out, the story. He says, so there was this uh, man, this Jewish man, and he was traveling along the road one day, the Jericho Road, and he gets robbed and left half dead in the ditch. And then a religious leader walks by and sees him in the ditch. Another Jew just keeps on walking, you know. I mean, you don't want to help the guy because you might get hurt too, you get unclean. Then another religious professional comes walking by, uh, you know, the youth minister at the temple. <laughs> keeps on walking. And then of all things, guess who comes walking by? The Samaritan, the hated and despised person. And then he's the one that helps. Well, he just blows the guy's brains. He can't figure the story out. And then Jesus goes, well, who was a good neighbor then? The one who helped the man in the ditch, the Samaritan. Go and do likewise. So I'm talking to Chief Conrad, goes to our church, and we're talking about the murder problem in our city. He was really under a lot of pressure, and the police force continues to be under a lot of pressure for two things in our city right now, the epidemic of murders and the uh, heroin addiction and the opiate addiction and the deaths. There's been like 72 deaths already this year from heroin addiction overdoses. And we were talking about the pressure that he's been under as police chief and the police department and the, and the mayor to come up with some solutions. And I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, David, this is not a police problem. This is not a government problem. This is a neighborhood problem. He said, there's a lot of things that we can do to address this situation, to address the situation with policies and more policing. But he said, if we really, really want to change our city, we need a city with better neighborhoods. Huh, didn't Jesus say that? Love your neighbor? So the, the, the idea is, if you really want to make the world better, it, it, you just can't go up to the mayor and say, Mayor, what are you going to do? President Trump, what are you going to do? Congressman, what are you going to do? Bevin, what are you going to do? No, no, those are all important. No, what are we going to do? And the idea is creating a community of better neighbors. Because when you're a neighbor, what happens? 
when you have a neighborhood with more neighbors that are, that are extending out into the city, uh, at-risk youth get neighbored. Elderly, lonely, shut-in people get neighbored. Felons who come out of the prison system can't find work, don't go back in their life of crime because they get jobs because someone neighbored them. Veterans return home from the war. They find places to live because they have been neighbored, creating more neighbors. But I want to tell you, it's getting a lot harder today. You know why? Because of fear. Fear. Fear is a corrosive, toxic force. And when fear gets put together with politics, it polarizes and divides people and augments and worsens the problems. Those people, when fear creeps into religion, it sanctions the divisions and divinely ordains the hatred and the prejudice. Fear, any kind of fear when it's in the system, the fear of the other, the fear of the stranger, it isolates and shrinks neighbors. That's what was happening when Jesus stepped on the religious scene. Everybody was afraid of everyone else. So everybody stay in your own lanes, and they used the religion to justify it. But when Jesus came, he came announcing the kingdom of God, which was bigger. A kingdom where the lamb will lie down with the wolf. A kingdom that reconciles enemies and brings people together and redraws the lines of the neighborhood. That's why his home church tried to kill him. He stood up and preached his vision of liberating the poor and the oppressed. And as soon as he included people outside their little neighborhood, what happened? They tried to throw him off a cliff. I remember when I was a student at TCU, I, I'd never been around anybody of a different race. I'd never been around anyone from a foreign country. I grew up in Bedford, Texas, the cultural hotspot of the universe. No, don't think so. And then I suddenly found myself living next door to a young African-American man from rural Arkansas, grew up on a farm. And a young Asian man from Hong Kong. On Sunday mornings, I went home for breakfast and to do my laundry about once a month. One day, I show up at my door with my laundry, the young African-American man's laundry, and the young man from Hong Kong's laundry, and said, Dad, will you make us biscuits and gravy? <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> there had never been a person of another race or another country, another religion in our house, period. And suddenly we're sitting at the dinner table, and it was amazing. That moment, I look back at that moment and realize what happened. At that table, our neighborhood got redefined. You see, the essence of following Jesus is, the essence of following Jesus is redrawing the map. The essence of following Jesus is sitting down at the table with people who are different from you. The essence of following Jesus is seeing the neighborhood expand. So what happens here in this story? He's basically putting the Samaritan as the hero of the story to make it even more dramatic, to basically make the point, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Anyone that needs help. Anyone in the ditch. 
We want to limit who we help. Well, we're only going to help those who look like us. That's my neighbor. We're only going to help those who deserve the help. Oh, there's a lot of poor people that don't deserve any help. We're going to help. We're going to, and I'm going to give some limit. You know, you can't help. You can only help so much. And I only have, No, there's no limitations. The man in the story, the radical part of the story is that Jesus is saying that the neighbor, the neighbor, the neighbor that you are to help is anyone in need. That is the gospel mandate. The gospel mandate is to care and to love the poor, to shelter the homeless, to protect the weak, to love our neighbor, anyone in need. That's the gospel mandate. It is not a sideline mission. In fact, Jesus at one point even says the difference between heaven and hell is not what you believe but who you care and show love to. What makes you a goat? You can love God and believe in God, but if you don't help anybody, you're just a goat. That's what Jesus said. That's his teaching. So the guy's listening to this, and this is what he's saying. Well, I mean, how do I do that? Let me, let me tell you. So here's, here's, this is the thing that ought to blow the top of your head off and just have everything go, wow, I never thought of that. Okay? Because when you read the story, when you read the story, nobody put yourself in the ditch. Right? When I read the story, you didn't identify with the person in the ditch, did you? No. You were either the youth minister ignored everybody, or you were the Samaritan that helped somebody. Do you know why he made the Samaritan hear the, hear the story and put the Jewish man in the ditch? Because he's trying to say to the religious man, you don't even know what you need. You don't even know that you're half dead, naked, and blind. So he's trying to get that religious man to put himself in the ditch and to ask himself the question, what would happen if I had to be dependent upon the mercy of someone that has every reason to hate me and I don't deserve it, any love or mercy? What would that be like? Here's the point. Do you know who the man in the ditch is? Put your finger in your chest. You. Who's the Samaritan in the story? Jesus. The one who had every reason to condemn us. The one who had every reason to judge us. Looked down upon us and saw us wounded and hurt and needy. And he neighbored us. That's powerful. Because once you realize that you need neighboring and mercy and love, loving your neighbor no longer becomes an obligation, but a passion. Paul writes, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most of us, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners and lying in our own ditch. And since we've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. 
For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of His Son while we were still His enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of His Son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. When I meet people, I meet people who want to keep a narrow little view of who their neighbor is, it's very clear to me that they've never met their God. And have never, ever fully understood their own woundedness and need for mercy. As we spend these five weeks now thinking about What does it mean to love our neighbor? The place to start is to remember, to remember that we have been neighbored. Will you pray with me? God, forgive us for focusing solely on the needs of others and not acknowledging our own need. And today, as we begin to think about what it means to neighbor others, may we acknowledge before you our own naked need, our own sin, our own weakness, that we are half dead in the ditch and without your mercy, we can't heal ourselves, reconcile ourselves, save ourselves, but that we need you and your love today. Forgive us, heal us, and cleanse us. We want to follow you into this world to show our love for you in the way that we love others. May we begin to live from that place in our heart where you've loved us. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. We can't say thank you enough. Thank you.